it did go away for a minute. Okay, there you are. We're here, Suzanne, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me to do this with you, David. Of course, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's my pleasure. I think this will be a blast. <laughs> me too. <laughs> awesome. So I, I, I was thinking we could start this off by, by just uh, maybe asking if you could share some of your background, uh, what this, this topic uh, pretty loosely, but also uh, you know, generally is, is about play and development and why these two, two things are so critically intertwined. Um, so so what, what's your background? Can you give us a story about yourself and, and tell us why you might be a great person to listen to? Sure. And I'll try to keep it short because I am now old enough that my background is getting to be fairly complicated. But I started in college as an intern and as a play therapist at what used to be Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco. And I worked there for a year and a half under um, the Department of Psychiatry and Social Work. And boy, I learned so much. And it's what basically started me on this path. And um, from there, I went on to become a child life specialist at Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. Um, I then went on to help um, run a statewide nonprofit around pediatric early literacy issues in our state. I then went on to be the executive director for a task force to address the obesity ep epidemic in um, the country. And um, then my last sort of where I wrapped up um, was with the California State Library. Um, in which I actually was brought on to help reimagine what public library service would look like for infants, toddlers, preschool, preschoolers, and their adult caregivers. Because at the time, that was actually an audience that libraries were not too excited about opening into, the, into their space, because, you know, libraries were pretty quiet, erudite spaces, and toddlers aren't, <laughs> and they're messy, and they don't keep the books in order, and so um, over uh, almost, not quite 20 years working with public libraries all over California, we have definitely changed library spaces for that audience, and now they're often the go-to place for young families with kids, because there's all kinds of programming, and it's free um, for parents with young children. So that's... Wow, that you know, that's awesome. And it seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, if you want libraries to stay in existence and stay something that people want to visit, you would think that, yeah. that you would you would make them something that a young person wants to be at because those are things that are going to carry on through life. That's right. And in fact, I think the other thing that was really seminal to sort of the impact that libraries had. They clearly want children to grow up to be readers. Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of stuff that we all do very early in life that doesn't look like reading, but is actually laying the foundation for reading. And so that was sort of the beginning of helping them understand, you know, human development is a lot more um, complex than we often give credit. And it's because of that, there's a lot of nuance to how kids learn and develop and, and that it's not always obvious to adults what's going on in their behavior. And I think for me, that's where play became this centralizing, organizing concept in all of my work because watching children who are very ill in the hospital watching kids who are struggling to learn to read and then working with adult environments that are trying to remedy kids who have yeah. reading or you know help children who are really struggling physically um <clears throat> it became really clear that actually 
play is this thread because it really is, I know it's a trite sort of statement, but it really is the way children learn. It, you know, the work of childhood is play. Imperative. It's as important to us as sleep and nutrition. Um, and every, every living creature, every animal, every child, every human being plays. So um, it's a super important concept. And, I, and yet I feel like in our super busy, structured lives, play is taking a real back seat and it has been trivialized or romanticized in a way that's just a shame. And I think, unfortunately, our kids are already paying the consequences. Um, of having not not having those kinds of opportunities in their lives, so I'm kind of that's kind of my that's the legacy I hope I'm going to be able to leave is to be able to support parents and families and organizations like you that are working really hard um, to make sure that play isn't removed from our children's lives. Well, I love that, and I think it's it's really profound what you said about parents and and that parents think that they see, they see this development happening and they might think that they need to get involved in a way that it maybe interferes or interrupts that, that playful process. And, and uh, I don't know, I just think, I, I was having a conversation with a gentleman um, not too long ago and he was talking about the, the, the advancements in science and the advancements in, in, in literature and the advancements in, in arts over the years. And we're talking like Einstein and Fleming and uh, Newton and, you know, the, I mean, you, the list goes on and on, but these, these people credit in many of their works, playfulness to yep. their, to their innovations, to their insights. Yep. And, and, and that, that really for that play is vital for human progress. That's not right. just not just child development that's right which it's vital for but for 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 all of it yeah it's it, it's so true in fact there's actually a group of people who have even coined the term we have a crisis in creativity um at all levels of human development um in because we've sort of eliminated play from everybody's life and that truly and i think if, if any of us sort of even self-reflect for a moment when we have really gotten excited about a topic or a subject, gotten really fascinated by something, we are essentially in a state of play. We're not learning it because somebody is requiring us to learn it. We're learning it because something about it has, got, has become deeply interesting to us. And we're curious and we wonder about, you know, how does this work and what's this about? And so, yeah, I think you're so right in that way. It, it's, it's about all of us. It actually isn't just about our kids. But I think if we don't establish a foundation early on in life, it's really hard to develop that kind of, you know, curiosity and wonder about the world later on. And in many ways, I feel like, unfortunately, for better or worse, and let me also say I have great respect for educators and teachers. And in fact, I'm really delighted to know that you're a high school teacher, David, and thank you for doing that every day. We, there are, we need remarkable, caring adults to be teachers and we don't remunerate them enough and we don't give them enough credit for the hard work they do. But I also think we've set up educational systems where everybody's losing. Teachers are losing, the kids are losing because we've become so focused on evaluating, assessing, and truly, we need to be much more in the moment and a whole lot less worried about teaching kids information 
the fact that they can just regurgitate knowledge is 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 very limited in terms of a human skill but the be but the able to problem solve to think critically to be able to work with others and um to survive failure and to learn from failure rather being rather than being so destabilized by failure that you won't try again you know those are the kinds of core concepts that you know help young people grow into inventors and scientists and you know all those incredible minds that really have just yeah. been groomed to think about things in new and different ways yeah, or even, or even just, even just people to find their their way, whatever that way is, whether whether it's inventing things or just just learning what their passion is. I think we're doing a disservice to to the. I I, I feel everything you just said. I, I feel almost like my soul is is being crushed in a way, and 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 I know there's there's uh, there's there's opportunities for reform, and there's there's things that are being talked about, and. And but but I definitely feel, and I feel it from the students' point of view too. I I feel that there is a felt need for some of those things that you talked about. More of an emphasis on 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 those things you said, problem solving and open mindedness, and looking at things in flexible ways, and and engendering a spirit of it's okay to make mistakes because that's where the the learning is. And every everything you touched on, I feel that the the students feel that they need those things too. Well, and I think that that's why for a lot of students, there's a real disconnect about school. It's like it's very hard to stay motivated or see what its value or purpose is, because just sort of being able to regurgitate a whole lot of facts that aren't, haven't been connected in any way that's relevant to your own life, it's like, uh, you know, truly. I mean, why do you need to know algebra if you're just sort of taught algebra in this very sort of abstract way? Yeah. Um, but if you have to apply algebra to a problem that you're trying to sort out, it's like, that's why I think so much of school, you know, the more it can be hands-on, the more it can, and if we'd also be willing to accept the long view instead of the short view. So let's evaluate kids every five years. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's too long. I don't know. But truly, we seem to be like, Every second, it's like, well, have they gained knowledge? Have they acquired? And then we put the pressure on teachers of like, are they learning fast enough? And it's like some of these skills, they, they're they starting very, very early. You know, physics, understanding of physics starts as with cause and effect with a toddler who drops a ball and sees gravity take hold. Um, and then that becomes more sophisticated thinking the more they get to play with that concept. Yes. Um, but and it's know. meaningful. When, when, a, when a child drops a ball, they're, yes. they're curious about it. I've been reading a lot of Alfred North Whitehead and, mm -hmm. and his ideas on process. And he actually yes. had some things on, on education and some feelings too. And, and he, he, he called it in, in learning, one of the things he said was needed was romance. But it, but it's the same. It's the same thing as curiosity. It's it's that it's that. What happens when a ball drops? Wow, that's that's interesting. And yes. then, th then there's the the what he called precision. Well, you really pay attention to what's happening. Right. That's and right. Then, and then the generalization. Well, how does this relate to other things that could be dropped? And well, and it's it's yeah. Well, and what's so what I love about your enthusiasm about saying that, especially as a dad of a young child, holding on to that sort of mindset when we watch our children. An activity that can look like, oh, they are just doing this to drive me crazy. 
It's like, actually, it's the phrase that Alison Gopnik framed that I just love. You know, there actually are scientists in the crib. So they are testing hypotheses yeah. over and over and over. And they are trying to figure out. So the dropping the ball 9,000 times isn't to send you down, you know, over the edge. But it's really about, I don't get what's going on here. So. You know, is it the, you know, is it the ball? Is it me? Is it, you know, what is causing this to happen? Yeah. Who's in charge here? How can I influence it? Am I influencing it? Is it magic? You know, they're just a thousand different questions that they truly are, perhaps not as in the concrete way that I'm describing it, but they're postulatizing it and then like testing it and what yeah. will happen when. And then of course you, you know, other people then get into the mix. So there's our parent reaction. And so at some point, too, it's like, yeah, I want to get my parent to react. So if I do this, that gets their attention. But again, if we look at it, not so much about just trying to be annoying, but yeah. trying to figure out that dynamic, that serve and return, how that works, what that's about. It's just it's fascinating. And I think when we can come to our children with our own curiosity about them as like, wow, what's going on for you? Because I think the, the thing that's hardest for us as adults is it's hard to remember that the world looks very different to a two-year-old than it does to a four-year-old, you know, than it does to a five, 10, 16-year-old, and certainly than it does to us. Sure. Because we've had years of testing our hypotheses. Yeah. So we've come to conclusions about how the way things work and little people are not there yet. And so we, I think we get into trouble as adults when we watch children and we assume we know what's going on for them. Well, and I get the, I get this. very adult lens. Yeah, I, I agree. And I get the sense that we as adults have not only had all these years of experience and learning and testing and, and, and coming to our own conclusions, but also having other people tell us how we should see the world and that that has interfered completely with our own ability to test to perceive and think about things um and then we and then we throw that on our kids i just think it's totally unfair well and i think what's heartbreaking about that david is and what underscores it every day is when we teach to the right answer yeah if there's only one answer then it doesn't allow people to think in divergent ways. It's great. For a number of years, I had the privilege to work with Elizabeth Rood and Lisa Regalia at the Center for Childhood Creativity, which was a part of the Bay Area Discovery Museum. And they were essentially a think tank and research um, facility researching creativity in young children. Awesome. And um, one of the examples that they would give over and over that I just loved is how important it is to encourage our kids to have divergent thinking. And the example they always gave is, you know, if all we do is ask our children, what is two plus two? There's only one answer yeah. to that question. And it actually gives them a very limited understanding of mathematics. But if we can ask questions like, so how many different ways can we get to four? You know, how many different numbers could combine to get to four? First of all, it makes us all curious. Yeah. And then, I mean, when you think about it, when you think about fractions, when you think about negative numbers, it's like we now have thousands of responses Infinite. Yeah. to, that, to yeah. that question. And every kid 
can have a sense of, well, because I see it this way. And then we get to, you know, actually leverage the creativity and the uniqueness that every human being is bringing into the world, um, rather than trying to smash everybody into this standard. And I think that's the other thing that's heartbreaking to me is that we really do not, and I, I also, let me also say, I have great empathy for why we as human beings make some of the choices that we make, even though to me, sometimes those choices are heartbreaking. I make them too. I also, you know, have contradictions in, in my life. But this wanting to get everybody to be the same, it's like actually the richness is in the places we see it differently. And yeah. Yeah. Other, well, and the other reason I was so thrilled and am so honored that you invited me to do this chat with you is it's in this give and take where I think that's where stuff gets really interesting. Yeah. And when somebody offers a viewpoint or a perspective that I hadn't considered, sometimes, you know, it pushes me and I, you know, just like everyone else is like, oh, well, I'm not sure I agree with that. And yet I'll keep thinking about it. Yes. It will stretch, you know, the way, place I'm going. So, you know, this desire that we all have to agree or we all have to see it the same way. I really wish we could get back to a place of let's respect everybody at the table, starting really with respecting our kids and really trusting that they are bringing some innate intelligence already to the world and that we need to be curious about them and interested and I mean genuinely curious about gee tell me more yeah I want to why do you think that way rather than you know when there's a great story years ago and I, I won't be able to remember the author's name um but he wrote a series of essays and the story he told was about this kid in a classroom when the teacher asked what color are apples and you know most of the hands went up and red red and yes yeah. apples are red and a few said green and yes green and a few said yellow yes there are yellow apples and then one little boy raised his hand and said they're white and the teacher said well no there really aren't any white apples and he was like i mean what i love about this story is the kid had the persistence to keep insisting Great. And he said, yes, no, apples are white. You cut them open and they're white. Amazing. And uh, to me, that's always this great reminder. Whenever I think I'm attached to, you know, the way it is and somebody offers a viewpoint that it's like, no, 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 no. It's like, yeah. remember the little boy and he was looking at it from a completely different perspective. And it was also true. It, it, this this all reminds me uh, of a Nietzsche quote I, I once read where he says, the surest way to corrupt a youth is to teach him or her to hold in higher regard those who think alike than those who think differently. And, and I, yeah, yeah, I thought I thought it was too. It resonated with me. And then uh, and then you said something about contradictions. And I, I just kind of had to laugh because I heard someone say once that human beings are where all the contradictions flow together. So <laughs> I, I think it's OK. Right. Like. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. So I th it's, what you touched on is, is so awesome because I think it'll lead right into kind of all the, all the things we, we might okay. want to talk about. Okay. Um, but it, before we get any further, I thought it might be fun to just ask uh, what you've done uh, this morning that has been playful since, since, since we are on that topic. Well... I actually, it, it involved you. Um, we had some technical difficulties getting the Skype going. And um, 
for me, I think it's another way that play has informed my life is rather than getting like, or one, rather than giving up and going, oh, well, we aren't going to be able to do it. Let's just reschedule. Or, you know, we problem solved and we're lighthearted about problem solving it. And we're willing to be, you know, I was joking around at one point that I might have to pantomime the whole thing. And, you know, <laughs> to me, you know, that is adult play. And it's about not taking ourselves too seriously, not getting too serious about the situation, being willing to play with it and sort it out and be creative and fail. You know, yeah, being willing, yeah. like, okay, worst case scenario, yeah, we'll reschedule. Or worst case scenario, it'll be a phone interview or, you know, whatever. But um, so, yeah, that, that's what I did this morning that was playful. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so, uh, so okay, let's jump into it then. Play, healthy development. Yeah. Why, why, is, why is play so part and parcel, I think, with, with healthy development? Well, um, you know, it is this biological drive. It is as, it is as essential to us as sleep and nutrition. Um, and in part, it's because, and we now know, I mean, years ago we used to speculate, but we now have the brain research that says it's how the prefrontal cortex gets wired. And the prefrontal cortex is where executive function exists. And that's, you know, that's a fancy term for basically explaining a series of skills that we have to learn um, basically to problem solve, to regulate our emotions so we aren't constantly, you know, having meltdowns or, you know, crying at the drop of a hat or getting so frustrated we won't persevere, um, problem solving, negotiating, all of that is a part of executive function. And for me, and for many researchers in education and in the, the sort of brain development, that's those skills are so much more important than knowing your ABCs or even how to write your name. You know, those are sort of fundamental skills that you can learn at any point. But executive function are foundational skills that enable you to learn those other skills. So, but it, so it happens in play. And in fact, you know, I, I'm not the only person who's like sort of gaga about play. Um, I think it was, I was actually just going to look at the quote. Yes, it was NACI that they called it a central component um, in all developmentally appropriate practices. And of course, NACI is the National Association for the Education of Young Children. So it's a core principle in their standards. And then even more stunning to me is the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights has basically declared that around the world, every child should have a right to play because it's so foundational to their growth and development. And again, you know, it's we tend to sort of trivialize it as something like, let's do that when we've got free time. Yeah. And yet for really young children, as I said, you know, play is their work. And because they're building their cognitive skills. So like, for example, when children are, you know, they, they might be using math and problem solving skills if they're doing a pretend grocery store. Um, they do, they uh, um, develop their physical abilities through play. You know, you, the only way we actually learn about how to coordinate our body is by using our body in usually play, you know, climbing trees, playing dodgeball, all of that, we're learning physics because we have to learn, you know, if you don't want to be hit by the ball, you learn a lot about how fast the ball is coming, which direction should you move, you're gauging all kinds and making very quick snap judgments. Well, 
in the beginning, kids don't know how to do any of that. And they figure it out because they play hours and hours of dodgeball or, you know, whatever the latest game is, um, where they learn about balancing or running around a playground or building with blocks. They learn a ton of, and they also um, develop their fine motor to gross motor development skills. Vocabulary happens in play. Um, kids extend their vocabulary lots of times, especially, you know, we've all seen this with dinosaurs. I mean, once a kid gets fascinated in dinosaurs, they know all the dinosaurs' names and can pronounce them correctly better than I can. And, you know, they're learning fantastic words that they might not be exposed to because they've been intrinsically drawn. They want to know those words um, because in their play, it's like now I'm working with this object and I want to make sure it's I'm calling it what I should be calling it. Literacy skills, literacy skills happen in play. Um, you talk about I just want to say real quick because I think it's relevant. You, you, you talk about literary skills and, and, and uh, use in words and learning vocabulary. And, and I was just reading about Tolstoy the other day. Well, uh-huh. apparent, apparently. So he, he started his own experimental school yeah. for several years that you probably know. Yeah. And and it's it's a lot in the lines of of I think where what we're talking about, mm-hmm. and and he he widely attributed as one of the greatest writers of all time, and yeah. and he 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 downplayed um, uh, grammar, and he said you don't need to teach kids grammar, you you teach them to be excited about writing, communicating messages, telling their story, and he and he said he said grammar takes care of itself. We right. learn grammar through basically playing with words and playing with sentences and playing with communication He was basically his approach. And, you know, the, the wonderful story, I hadn't heard that, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because, yeah. Well, because it resonates for me because I've, you know, again, it goes back to none of us really learn anything except into relationship with other people and doing something we care about. So I will care about grammar when I care. And I will care about what you're telling me about grammar when I care about and I believe that you are interested enough in what it is I'm trying to communicate. And, you know, the the example of and yes, grammar certainly matters. Let me not denigrate grammar. But it's like the statement of, you know, let's eat grandma or let's eat grandma. And, you know, the comma separates the meaning in those statements dramatically because if there's no comma it sounds like we want to eat grandma rather than we're inviting grandma to eat with us um but you're so right it's like yeah it doesn't matter when it's just in the abstract but if you care about what i'm writing and you can't understand me but you really want to understand me then i'm going to want to know from you what you can teach me about grammar and i will then or i will figure it out for myself even without I mean, there are lots of people who self-teach themselves, too. You know, that idea that we have to be instructed. It's like, not if you're motivated enough. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to, yeah, I, I, the, the self-teaching is very valuable to me. And I tend to, where people try to teach others how to do things, I, I tend to kind of uh, shudder when I, see, when I see that happening too, too much. Yeah. Though, I, you know, clearly, I think there's a, very skilled teachers do an excellent job of guiding. You know, they come alongside and they join with their students. Yes. It's just, it's, it's a joy to watch. It also is incredibly hard work. And I think that's the other thing about a lot of the professions that work with children. And I think it's part of the reason we get into trouble sometimes as adults. 
because we feel like unless we can make our presence really visible, others who are judging us will assume that we've done no work on behalf of these children. And yet oftentimes it's all the front loading yeah. teachers do that create the environment, you know, all the intentionality and thought that go into creating learning environments um, where, yes, kids are inspired and encouraged and there are different places where kids can grab onto this topic based on where how they're getting their arms around it. You know, that takes a lot of work, but someone just walking in to observe the classroom may not see all of that and they may actually see a teacher who's stepping back from, yeah. you know, being right in the process and letting kids flounder and struggle. And then the teacher gets evaluated as not doing enough. And it's like, oh my gosh, I know. so much has been done here and so much thought. And if we would just let that process play out and give it a longer period of time before we rush to evaluate it, I think we would be really surprised at the amazing results that can come when we, when we actually nurture those kinds of environments. I think you're totally right. And, and I like how, because it's not teaching and you said it, it's guiding, it's facilitating, right. it's being there with the other individuals. We're in this together. It's a team right. and, and we're all, we're all on this, you know, whatever this learning journey is together. I've had students at the end of a year, I hear them talking with their friends and I've, I've heard on, on different occasions, I've heard a conversation that basically goes like this, a, 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 a a student, a young um, girl or, or guy will be saying to, to his or her friend, I, 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 Mr. Butterworth didn't teach anything this year in math. And then, and then I kind of like hear it, you know, from across the room. And then the next sentence is, and I've learned more this year of math than I've ever learned in my entire life. And, and, and so I always chuckle. And I think that's like the greatest compliment because I, I'm, I think in my personal journey as a facilitator, I really dread that word teacher. Um, I'm beginning to really not like it, um, but but I'm I'm learning to step back more and more, and 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 the uh, the the setup and the air of the room and all that stuff is very intentional. Um, but I but I also do I do a lot of answering questions with questions and 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 a lot of a lot of just stepping back and letting the kids kind of work on it their on their own. And uh, but but I, I think it's powerful when a student when I hear a student saying like because that's that's the that's the feedback right there. Yep. No, that, that's fantastic. And I'm glad that you've gotten to get that feedback because I think that's the other thing that can be unfortunate sometimes is, and again, it's why I think we do ourselves a disservice to be constantly so focused on immediate feedback and evaluation is I think we have to keep to our trust and intention that we're doing right. And because there for that one student that you heard from, I bet you anything, there are 10 others you won't have overheard or, you, you know, it's quadruple. We are constantly impacting and influencing each other. And that's why the more we can come from a place of positive regard and, you know, a hopeful, curious place about respecting other people, I think every person we come across, we touch and in hopefully a positive way because we've come from that intentional space. That That's minimizing, and I don't mean to minimize because I also think there's even more to it when you are intentionally trying to help facilitate because I don't like that word teacher either and it's funny that you say it I mean my parents were teachers I have a lot of respect for the profession but I think it's kind of an outdated term because I think it tends to suggest that it's very didactic that that there will be instruction and in fact 
one of my pet peeves is telling parents that they are their child's first teacher because what I really want that message to be is there is no one on this earth who is more important to your little one than you. Um, especially for the first eight years of life, you are the center. I mean, they're the center of their universe and you're a close moon. <laughs> but, I mean, truly, you are the sun around which they're revolving. And um, so parents have tremendous amount of influence. So I'm not suggesting that they don't. But teacher implies, and I think it can, for many parents, add another stressor. I think it can suggest that you're going to have all the answers. Yeah. And I, I think parents oftentimes get put in terrible situations where they feel like they're going to lose face to their children if their children ask them a question and they don't know the answer. And actually, that's the most amazing gift, I think, that can happen in a parent-child relationship is when a parent is willing to say, what a great question, and I have no idea. But let's go, let's, let's do some research here. Let's find this out. Let's investigate. What do you think? And I know for myself, I mean, even if there are things that, yes, somewhere back in my gray matter, I do remember why the sky is blue, um, took a class, you know, in high school that explained all of that. When I'm taking care of kids now and, you know, why is the sky? But, oh, I cannot, I, I can't pull that information out yeah. to save my soul. I don't have to. And in fact, I think it's a really fantastic model for children to see that adults do not have all the answers, that we also make mistakes, that we reevaluate our behavior. And there are times when we do things and go, like, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. I think I'm going to try to do something different here. And it's because really that's, if we're going to use the term teacher, the most powerful teacher for children is just the people they watch. And that if we want to raise children with character and moral values, it, then we have to live the moral values and character, you know, attributes that we want our children to have, because we can lecture them all we want about how they should be in the world. They're going to base their behavior on how they see us be in the world. I love it. I love it. And, and at some point when, when you were talking the last few minutes, you, you mentioned uh, this kind of like positive regard that, yeah. that you that you put on the situation in the environment with the relationship. And there's just this overwhelming. And I think it was A.S. Neal. And he, he did he founded the Summerhill School. And, and, and so I've been reading a little bit about that lately, too. And um, I think he used those words. He said that was unconditional. He called it. I think I think it was him unconditional positive regard was was the one thing was one of the main things that that you just that's that's what a child needs period and and then and then i love how you touched on like that their their teacher is their is what they're seeing it's what they're living it's their experience i mean that that's really the the teacher and absolutely i mean there are times that they are going to need help understanding what they're seeing and hearing. And I think for me, that's what worries me the most about our digital age is because we oftentimes leave kids, you know, they're watching it up by themselves and there's nobody that's sort of like that. We're not talking with them about, so, you know, what did you see and what do you think that means and helping them sort of figure it out and piece it together. 
I do want to do a little shout out briefly about that positive, unconditional positive regard. Um, I was really fortunate to work with T. Barry Brazelton, who was a world-renowned pediatrician. He started the Touchpoint Center um, at Harvard um, Medical School at Boston Children's Hospital. And I actually, we did a huge partnership with them, um, with public libraries to do staff development training um, because he did develop a very specific training curriculum um, originally for healthcare providers. Now we've, we've trained librarians in this and early childhood educators can get the touch points training. Parents now, they're doing, they've done a lot of work for Head Start to do training for parents. But one of the, the um, concepts that they have developed that I just love is they really try to move all of us from a deficit-based approach to looking at the world to an assets-based approach. And we all, you know, we all, especially in this day and age, we're all looking at the problem first. And even when there is a real problem that has to be addressed, we dive into fixing that problem before we step back a minute and go, even in the middle of this problem, some things are working. So let's identify the things that are working first and get sort of a scaffolding of some strengths under people before we rush in to correct them or fix what they're doing wrong. And so they even went so far as creating what were intentional attitudes um, that they encouraged anyone who went through the training to keep in mind, especially when it came to parents. Love it. Um, the idea is these are, so they were strength-based attitudes and it was, all parents have strengths. All parents want to do well by their children. All parents have ambivalent feelings. All parents have something critical to share at every stage of development. All parents are experts of their own children. And parenting is a process built on trial and error. And I just, I try to hold those in my heart all the time. And I've now extended it to all people. This is true about all human beings. And the other po point that they used to make about these um, attitudes is, so these, this is an intentional attitude I sent for myself. Other people do not have to prove this to me. So parents don't have to prove to me that they are well-intended when it comes to their children. And sometimes I can see a parent and it doesn't look like, you know, they're behaving in that moment. And it could look to me in a very quick judgmental moment. It's like, ah, they don't care about their kids. But it's like, if I can come back to, but I'm going to hold the belief that all parents, even in their worst moments, want to do right by their kids. It just changes. It changes the dynamic in really powerful ways. And it's just, it's all about me. I, you know, I'm not saying or doing anything different to the parent. It's just about how I'm going to, now how am I going to enter that situation? And what will I say or do if I say or do anything? It's just a very different thing I would say or do than if I didn't kind of hold those intentions at the back of my mind. That's really interesting. And, and so it's not just that you're, you're putting this regard to like the child, but you're putting it to the whole environment. You're putting it also to the parent and you're just putting out a totally different energy to the situation. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, sounds, that sounds amazing. Well, and I think that's also one of the things that's interesting to me because I feel like I think we give a lot of lip service in our country to valuing children. And yet I don't know that we actually really 
respect and value them as a society on a regular basis. But even less than, I mean, that for parents, I think as a society, we are incredibly hard on parents. And I think parents are incredibly hard on themselves. And so I sort of feel like, yes, absolutely. What, what really matters is the parent-child relationship and that we want to keep whatever we're going to do. If we are outside providers or teachers or doctors or whatever who are, you know, touching families, mm-hmm. our ultimate goal is we want to make sure that whatever we're doing keeps that parent and child continuing to fall in love with each other. I love that. Uh, yeah. And because that's the, I think that's one of the hardest things about parenting. You have to constantly re-meet, you have to re-meet this person because they keep changing so fast. So they are not the person at four that they were at two. Yes, you'll find, you'll see elements of the two-year-old and the four-year-old. Um, you'll see elements of the four-year-old and the 30-year-old, but they are changing people. Well, us too. I mean, I mean that, that, that dynamic of change, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for making that clarification. I just feel like sometimes clearly it's less dramatic in adults than it is in the early years of kids where like, oh my gosh, they're just like before our eyes, if nothing else, just physically, you know, they're maturating in ways like, oh, how did he get so tall? Or how did she get so, you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, I just, I think we we tend to forget that it's an, it's an ongoing process and we are building a relationship with another human being and I think that's the other part that's super hard about parenting. You have to love them with all of your heart, and then you have to let them go at some point. You know, they aren't you. They are this separate, unique person who may have very different aspirations than you had. Um, there's a great, I love Andrew Solomon. He's a journalist, and he, um, he's done a number of TED Talks. He also has a book called Far From the Tree, um, and in the book, he was actually um, hired, I believe it was the New York Times, that hired him to do interviews with parents whose children were very different from them. And, you know, the premise being is parenting's hard under the best circumstances. It's the most, it's the most rewarding and it's the most challenging task I think human beings take on. Um, but it's a tad easier when we give birth to a child that we get. It's like, oh, I get you, I, or I, or I feel like there's something about you that resonates with me, or you look like me, or you, there are things about me that I see in you. It's like, nah, I can, I can bond with this kid. Yeah. Then the parent who has the child who's nothing like them. I think that bridge can sometimes be more tenuous, and you know, parents beat themselves up because they're like not automatically bonding, or you know, it's not just happening magically and so i think you know it's this journey of them so how do we help them find a way to love each other even when they are very different people yeah um you know who don't necessarily share attributes and amazingly a lot of families do it all the time every day they find that bridge to each other well you you mentioned at some point we have to let let them go and, and be their own person. But, but I imagine that starts at the very beginning. And, and even this bridge that, that we would be building in a relationship sense to someone who maybe isn't us, definitely isn't us, and maybe isn't anything like us, 
the, the letting go part, letting them play, letting them that's right. have space, letting them be that person, whoever that is, that right. that's part of the, the strength of the relationship. So can you, can you touch on like, like maybe some tangible ways that parents can really let that happen or, or let the, let play happen and let that development and that relationship happen? I think a lot of it has to do with, and this is hard to do. I mean, it's really, so again, I want to be really respectful and say, it's super easy for me to sit back here and say, all of you parents out there, you should do, <laughs> you should do this. Um, and also the idea that you're not going to do it all the time. No human being can. Um, we are going to mess up. We will. And I think the, the message for parents in particular about like not doing harm or if you've messed up is it's a relationship. And in all human relationships, we are going to do or say things that we wish we hadn't, that were hurtful, even though we didn't want them to be. What's important is, are we willing to do the repair? And so I think, you know, just in terms of harm, I think that's one sort of attitude we can strive for for parents is to let ourselves give, you know, sort of take us off the hook of, yeah, for better or worse, you're going to make mistakes. And there are times you're going to do things you regret. There are times you are going to hurt your kids' feelings or hurt them in some other way. Hopefully never intentionally. You certainly strive never to do harm, but you are. So just take that pressure off you and then but say, but I will be willing to go to them and say, regretted that. Let's do a do-over or let's talk about it or let's rethink it together. You know, be willing to do that, I think, is hugely important. Then I think the other thing is, is to be able to not take it personally. Your child is not a reflection of you. They are in part, but a huge, I mean, they come, babies come into the world with their own temperaments and sometimes I think their own agendas. And so, you know, and there are so many things that influence our children. You certainly, you know, parents certainly are huge influence with their children, but you know, it's the chemi- it's the biological chemistry that's their makeup that's going on. And we're, le- we're still learning so much about how all of that soup that they swim in and then it, that is influenced by them ends up having an impact on choices they make. So being able to step back just a little from taking everything so personally or feeling like everything your child does is a reflection of you or that everything your child should want to do should should be a reflection of you you know they sh- i i was a softball star they should want to play softball well certainly introduce them to them share if it's something that you're passionate about of course you can share your passions with your child but you might, you might need to be prepared if they end up you know not wanting to pursue your passion and it doesn't mean they're rejecting you it means they're trying to find their space and i think that's one of the other things about our overstructured adult involvement in children's play, it actually makes it really hard for kids to individuate, to find their own identity. And because in play, and that was sort of the last, one of the last concepts of, you know, all the levels on which kids learn cognitively, physically, verbally, all of that sense of self is hugely discovered and explored through play. and my and when I play with others, you know, I learn how to be with others through play. I learn about 
the kinds of way of being in the world. I learn about the kinds of things I like doing, the professions I might want to pursue. All of that happens in these magical pretend worlds. And for really young kids, that's the other thing I think it's important for parents to understand. Kids don't go play. Really young children, they're playing all the time. In their heads, they're making up scenarios and stories about how the world works and how what's going on right now and what their parents are doing. And, you know, long internal conversations for some kids can be going on in their heads all the time. So there isn't always this separation between now we're going to play and now you shouldn't play. And sometimes that can be a problem behaviorally because parents expect the kids, they don't think the kids are in a moment of play right now. And so they're misbehaving. And it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm just in my fantasy world here. Yeah. Um, and it's, that can actually be a, a thing when you're talking to your child and people, parents or other adults can say you're lying. And it's like, no, I'm, you know, lying is an adult concept. It's sort of like, no, I'm spinning my magical world <laughs> story. Yeah. And this is where I'm living right now. This is the way the world works in the magical world I'm living in. You may not be living in my world, but... In my world, this is the way the world works. Anyway, interesting. Yeah. In, in much to answer your question in much more concrete ways about how we as adults can support and facilitate children's play. Yeah. Give them lots of opportunity to play on their own and give them lots of open ended materials. I really wish we could remove from most homes all of the perfect toys that have been made to look exactly like the adult versions and. In fact, even giving real cell phones to kids, it's like, you know what? A box in the shape of a cell phone with a keypad printed on it can, or a banana. I mean, yeah. a tool, I've seen kids take bananas and turn them into phones. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the idea, the more sort of open-ended material, so lots of sand, water, dirt, sticks, cardboard boxes, balls, shovels, you know, those kinds of things we can give kids, they will turn that stuff into whatever they need it to be for wherever their play is taking them. So that's my number one tip. Lots of hands-on materials. And also be willing to, you know, if something is sort of, if you see play happening in a way that you're like, oh, hell, that's kind of peepee. Don't rush in immediately to like correct it. Stand back for a little while and also be willing to talk to your children about their play, not give them the inquisition. But when you're at the end of the day, when you're talking about, you know, so how was your day? Their play, they're for really young kids, their day was play. So let's, what did you play today? What did you do? Tell me more. Why? Tell me more is a great extender for adults to have in their back pocket when kids start talking. And sometimes when they'll start talking about their play, it is come. I mean, I will sit there going, I have no clue what you're talking about. Yeah. None of this makes any sense to me. And rather than trying to force my world to be like, tell me more. Yeah. I'm fascinated. Yeah, it and, doesn't have to make sense to yeah. us. And having them keep stringing it out, it's really, really great. The, and then the other thing that parents can do is your our presence, your presence can be super terrific, but only if you're willing to know that the kid is in charge. Yeah. So if, if we enter children's play, we yeah. enter it only when we're going to be willing to let go of driving the car. 
because it is its most magical and rewarding for children when they're directing it. So if you enter their play and they want you in the sandbox to sit in the sandbox with them, by God, get down and sit in the sandbox with them. Yeah. And sometimes they don't want you to say or do anything. They just want you to pay attention, which is another huge gift to children. Because sometimes in those moments when we can just hold them in positive regard while they're playing, that's when they actually may open up to you through their play and in what they're saying about something they're struggling with, they're worried about. They, you know, Billy and I, you know, kind of lost it on the playground and I'm playing it out now in the sandbox and I, you know, don't know how to say I'm sorry. You know, it, it won't sound quite like that. But again, it's not like you have to be a mind reader and look at their play. And, and, and as I say, aggressive play doesn't always mean something bad happened. Yeah. But they'll start to say things to you or ask for your input <clears throat> about certain things. And you'll start to get a clue here. Like, you know, I wonder if something really happened in the world that they're now trying to kind of figure out here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another example of that, for example, is when we take our kids to the playground. Of course, we want them to be cooperative, associative players, but they have to learn that. And so sometimes it's as simple as, you know, I noticed you looking over at Ian. Do you want, shall we go over and invite him to play with us? You know, it's that's adult inserting themselves, you know, helping to create a play environment for their child without having to direct it and, and clearly offering it as a question. So your child can say, no, 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 I want to play by myself or yeah, actually, I, but I, you know, I don't know how to say hi to Ian or what to say, or, well, let's, let's go over and try. And of course you go with them and you can help facilitate that conversation. And, you know, I think that's another thing about, um, and, and this even came up at the, the, the other evening when we were talking, you know, that this idea about, you know, well, how do we choose, um, teach our children consent. Well, you don't sit down and give them a lecture when they're 13. We teach consent when they are tiny. And, you know, in like a rough house play, you know, if we notice that one child is, you know, I think the example we had the other night is one kid got shot in a pretend play and was like upset about being shot. It's like, well, at that point, you know, a parent can, with, you're not stepping in to reprimand anybody. You're not stepping in to rescue the kid who got shot and maybe upset about that. And you're not stepping in to reprimand the kid who did the shooting. It's much more of like, okay, this is a teachable moment. And we're gonna step in and maybe say something. We could start with the shooter who isn't visibly upset and just say, you know, did you ask Tommy if he wanted to be shot? Yeah, I love that, yeah. Or, and it's like, no, I didn't. And then you can sort of turn to Tommy. It's like, well, Tommy, you know, did you want to be on that end of the play today? Did you want to be shot today? And you'll be, you'll be so surprised. I mean, kids are super, if nothing else, they are in the moment and they are super honest. So they'll tell you. And then you can facilitate, well, you know, you can tell each other, you know, when you've had enough when this is too much, when you want to switch sides, I want to be the person with the weapon and you have to be the person who I abuse with the weapon or whatever. Um, but again, you know, that's all about, our role is not to direct what they're going to do with their play. Our role is actually trying to give them some tools so that they can communicate with each other and continue the play.
Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I love that too, because it, it, it's, and I think you mentioned the other night, it's like, well, if it's, if it's play for both of them, whatever it is, it's play. Right. But as soon as it stops being play for one, that, that, that's the, it's such an opportunity. Right. Those, que- those questions that, that you could ask them that you, that you mentioned are so brilliant, I think, because you allow them to say, well, no, this isn't play for me anymore. That's right. Um, and that's right. I, I don't know. I think that's, that's amazing. And for really young, especially when a, aggressive play can happen, which is super important for all kids, regardless of their background. I think that's the other thing as adults. You know, I've often heard um, adults, parents and teachers who are watching kids roughhouse who will immediately go to, oh, well, they must be something must have been done to this kid, you know, and they're working out some trauma in their life. And absolutely, kids, that could be the case. But it's a <clears throat> I really want to caution people. To it's that's a that's one possibility, but aggressive play is where we all figure out about power, and so and every kid has to. Yeah. So playing aggressively is something all children are going to do, even if they are living the most peaceful, calm, tranquil lives with you know in a wonderful, safe environment. But I do think, even very young, again, they're so absorbed in themselves they aren't paying any attention to the other person they're playing with. And so sometimes parents do have to just step in and, and they're too young to, you know, the conversation about enough. You just may have to stay in and say, look, I think you guys need a timeout. Yeah. You know, there won't be a dialogue going on there because the kid is too young yet. That's way too many words and too logical and too, it's just like, whoa, let's take a break and let's do something else. Sure. Cause you know, we need a break. We all need a break. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, then and then, as I say, when they get older, then you can intervene about, well, let's, you know, let's check in with each other because it looks like we're, we're out of sync. And so if we're out of sync, play group play, cooperative play isn't happening anymore. So let's check in with each other. So anyway, I love, I, I love that. And I, and I just it came to my mind, like when I've had conversations with uh, with Brixton, our, our son Brixton, uh, and, and and it may be. At a, when he's one or two and he's three now and, and these conversations are like and I've, I've kind of in my own mind I thought of it like well I'm going to have the conversations to him like I would as he's a human because I'm I'm not only setting this up for him later on um, but I'm building that in into our communication that respect that um, just as a habit for myself that, that we're talking we're talking as two humans here so even if he doesn't maybe understand it the way that I'm trying to communicate, it's it's just creating a habit. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So I I think that's one of the that's my personal bias. I think it's one of the best things we can do, in part because children understand language long before they speak it, and so I've never talked down to kids, and I've been criticized my entire. You know, people will say to me, "He doesn't understand what you're saying." You know, he doesn't understand that big word you've used, and it's like, well, first of all. We communicate with more than just words. So they pick up on intent, yeah. they pick up on body language, <clears throat> and this is how their vocabularies grow because I'm not giving them this big word out of context. So apps, and I do, I also think as just you pointed out, you know, by doing that from the get-go, you're already laying a foundation of respect. And I, I, clearly, yeah. and it's and at some point, if, if I'm getting over, I mean, 
my nephew used to take me aside at one point. He said to me, I'm only five, Suzanne, and I don't understand what you're saying. And then I'd be like, okay, let's break it down then. Yeah. And, and I said, and what a great question, because sometimes I say big words and maybe I don't really understand what I'm saying. So let me take a step back and let's talk about it. It was great. So oh, I, I, like I, think it's, I think it's a really smart thing to do. Well, what a good opportunity, like if, if your nephew's saying, hey, I don't understand. And you're like, let's break it down. Like that's, that's communication. It, this all reminds me of Bertrand Russell. He said once something about like, if you want to teach people how to think, you, you start with them when they're young and you, and you communicate with them like they're, like they're human beings and you, yeah. you, and you have intelligent conversations with them and you yeah. tell them what you're trying to communicate and you read with them and you talk about deep, um, important issues and, and you do it from the very beginning because that's the only way it happens. Absolutely. And I, and I think it starts, you know, th that's to me what is so heartbreaking when we rush in to correct a child because the message that that child immediately takes on, even when we try to do that insertion lovingly, I'm wrong. Yeah. There's something yeah. wrong about me. Yeah. Rather than, you know, so about the answer about the apples, you know, I would never, I would hope we would never have to say to a child, no, that's wrong. I really wish the response could be, well, tell me more of why you think that. Yeah. Explain to me why you see it that way, which immediately, at least I think, is conveying this message of, I respect how you think. And, and you think differently than me because all human beings do think, you know, uniquely. So I'm, tell me more about how you see it that way. And why do you, why would you say that about that? And, and then you do, you, you also, it stops being this, I have all the answers and these are the right answers to one, I'm finding out the way you're looking at it. And lo and behold, it's like, oh, you're coming at it from this completely different angle. Anyway, I just, I think there's so much more richness to be had in our relationships when we're actually willing to have those kinds of conversations than this sort of didactic teacher relationship. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that uh, exactly what you're saying. It makes so much sense. I mean, you're, we're giving the opportunity for the, the person to have this like personal empowerment and, yeah. and, and, and these buildings of self-esteem and, and, and create and everything, just being able to keep talk about what they're thinking and every, all of that. Yeah, it just seems like the... the yeah. Well, and I think we do a similar thing um, with children's emotional states. And I get this, you know, I've been in a grocery store line with a screaming toddler who's having a meltdown. Yeah. And yeah. everyone sort of pulls back from you as if you've all of a sudden become <laughs> contagious. And, you know, the judgment that's going on about, you know, I must clearly be a bad parent because I can't keep this kid under control. And yeah which is a terrible place to get pushed to because toddlers, I mean, there are some kids who don't have meltdowns, but almost every kid, toddlerhood is very frustrating because you, you now know you have ideas about things you want to do, but you can't do them yet. And so it's, it is so frustrating. And I think the biggest disservice, even though I get why we do it, you know, that toddler who's having a meltdown because they want the candy bar in the grocery store line, we will frequently acquiesce and just give it to them. But in that moment, we have the message I think the child basically takes in is my parent doesn't think I will be able to handle this strong emotion. 
I am not going to be capable of learning how to handle this strong emotion. So they're giving up on me. On I love that. I love that perspective. So in those moments, as hard as it is, I think it's much more important to acknowledge the child and to be able to say something like, I completely get it. You really want a candy bar and it's hard to not have something we want when we want it. But I believe you can learn to navigate this. And let's talk about other, you know, so what are some other ways we can deal with frustration or what can, you know, or let's look at all of the things you've already had a chance to have today. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Now, granted, uh, in the middle of a tantrum, this is not a teachable moment. You're not going to have any kind of rational conversation with a little person, but you can join with them and say, I get it. You are, you are, you've had it. This is, you are at the end of your rope. I get it. Um, yeah. Well, there's an acknowledgement, there's an approve, there's a, a feeling of approval, for, no matter what's going on. Right. There's this like attempt, right. there's this effort to communicate, right. even if it's not really happening. Right. And yeah, you're just, you're, 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 you're being there. You're, you're Actually, being a part of it. Actually, there was a parent who came the other evening and, and I, I thought of this only as I was driving home afterwards because it was the end of the evening and I, I felt like I didn't do her question service, but um, she, had ha she has a toddler who, um, has meltdowns over getting Tupperware containers open. Okay. And again, this is a great, for me, I think one of the best strategies is in those moments before the meltdown, you can see the frustration happening. And before the meltdown has gone into, has launched, if you can, and granted, you might not always be able to do this, but if you can catch it right before it's gone into overdrive, um, <laughs> To be able to even just commiserate with her, I get it. You see me opening the Tupperware, you really want to be able to open the Tupperware. Yeah. But here's the really important, here's one word, there are two words actually in the human language that I think every parent should keep in their back pocket. To be able to say to this child, you just can't do it yet. Oh, I love that. Love because it. A three-year-old doesn't know that they are not going to be stuck in this perpetual state of forever. Yeah. You will always be more competent than they are, and they are never going to be able to master the Tupperware. So I think that's part of the reason the meltdown comes. It's like, and a frustration of, I don't get why I can't. Other people around me are doing it, and I can't do it. You can't do it yet. I love that. Let's, here's a thousand Tupperware containers. Go out there and keep working on it. Yeah, I, I, I love that. So part of it's just fiscal maturation in terms of yeah. motor development. But being able to let them know yet. The other word is or. When kids catastrophize and start saying, it's, you know, it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful or I'll never be able to, you know, I'll, especially if they do, I'll never be able to do it. Well, you can't do it yet. Um, or it's going to be awful. It's going to hurt. It's going to last a really long time. Or. It could be interesting, or it could be actually boring. You know, it won't even be you know traumatic at all. It could actually be boring, or you know, you you start just giving them a long list of it could be all kinds of crazy things we don't know yet because until we go through it, we actually aren't going to know. And I clearly, I can tell you what it was like, and this this came up a lot with working with when kids were sick. I could you know I've worked with lots of sick kids. I myself have been sick. But what's going to work for you? Only you, only you know that. But I'll, I'll sit here and we'll figure it out together. 
But yeah, we kind of have to go through this process together to figure out what's going to work for you. I love that. And that speaks to the presence and, and, and being able to be patient and, and give yourself the time to be in this. Yeah. You know, even if everyone's not like judging you, it certainly feels like it. <laughs> it's, it's it, it is super hard and it is super hard to do it in the moment. That's why repair, you can talk about it later after when we're all of yeah. cooler heads. But yeah, it, it can be challenging. And but and it doesn't but it also doesn't have to be these long conversations. I mean, just, yeah. just sympathetically joining with our children sometimes is as simple as holding them. Love it. And, and parents do this instinctually all the time. It's why we soothe babies. We are instinctively joining with that infant to soothe them. And it's like, and reminding them, I'm here. You're not alone. I'm here. Love that. And, and when, you were, when you were talking about the Tupperware story, I just want to go back to that for, for a moment. Sure. What I didn't hear you say, which I loved, was here's a parent who's like, oh, I'll do it for you. And, and I love that. And, and uh, it, it kind of speaks to, I guess, the, the you know, you, you, you're part of the play or you're, you step back and watch it, whatever that play means, but you're not in there directing it um, or, or, or putting your hands on it. It, it reminded me of another um, situation I, I witnessed once where a parent was doing a puzzle with, with, a, with a, a, probably a two-year-old or three-year-old. And the, the little girl was working on the puzzle and the parent came in and, and the little girl like put down a piece. It was, br it was brilliant. I loved it. And then the, the parents said, no, that's not how it goes. And yeah. I remember earlier in your talk, how you said a, a, a child doesn't necessarily realize that the parents trying to say, Oh, try it another way. That what the child right. might hear is you're wrong. You, that's right. You know, that's, you know, you're doing this wrong. In reality, the, the child's just playing. They're just, right. they're puzzling. They're, right. they're trying to figure it out, which I think is, is, is amazing if we just if we step away and let them play with the puzzle however they want. That's uh -uh. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and it, I think those are those, we don't realize that our messages have these sort of subtle under messages that really are about our children's self-esteem and whether or not we have, I mean, I think that's the other thing we have to have as parents. We have to trust and believe in the developmental process. And, you know, we now know more about the developmental process than we've ever known, especially with all the brain research. And I think that's another important concept I do want to share before we close, you know, this, this idea of growth mindset. And Carol Dweck at Stanford has done tons of research on it. And I just, it's super important. And I do think, again, lots of times it's a misunderstanding by a parent about how intelligence develops. And there is this fear that if our child does it wrong, they're going to like somehow always be doing it wrong, rather than understanding that, you know, first of all, the realization that intelligence is not fixed. That's important. A lot of people don't yeah. believe that. A lot of people believe that you are born with whatever intelligence you're going to have and there's nothing you can do to get smarter or anything. You're just stuck with the hand you were dealt. Um, but what we now know from the research is that quite an in fact, all of us, and even across the entire lifespan, can grow our intelligence and that can rebuild synapses. It's why stroke victims can relearn skills. I mean, we are, it might not be as dramatic later in life as it is early on, but we clearly can grow our intelligence. But you have to be willing to put in the effort. Yeah. 
and the time, and you have to be willing to do trial and error. That's how we grow our intelligence. And all of us have a mix. I mean, almost every human being has a topic about which they might have a fixed mindset. Me, it's mechanical, anything mechanical. And I'll be like, oh my God, I need to get somebody in here to fix it. Um, and other people might be art or, you know, I can't draw worth a whatever. That's that people would say, okay, you have a fixed mindset about it. But actually, if we were willing to put in the time and energy to actually study and practice those skills, we all could get better at them. Yeah. Um, but, we, you know, all human beings have to make choices. There's, we've, all, we've got so much time and there are only so many subjects we want to, you know, spend a lot of time getting to know. But so that's, that's why, you know, if a parent can hold this belief in a growth mindset, then effort, resilience, perseverance, you know, looking at it multiple different ways, yeah. trying different strategies, those are all kinds of things we want to be fostering in our kids because that's what will get them to be these smart, creative, intelligent beings, not me giving them the answer. I love it. It goes right in line with your statement about the Tupperware where, where you said you don't know how to do it yet. That's right. It, that's that whole, that word at the end there is, is, is growth mindset. Uh, in a nutshell, I so growth mindset has really shown up in in my like uh, in my development as uh, in teaching practices or, or facilitation practices. Um, Joe Bowler, who I think worked a little bit with uh, Carol Witzweck, yeah. but but she's applied it specifically to 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 math and number sense and yeah. and things like that. But um, I've, I'm a big fan of Joe Bowler's work for, for the same reason because it's 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 all about that growth mindset and the, this idea that if you you tell yourself you can't do it and you don't give yourself a chance to prove otherwise right of course, of course you know it's not going to change well and a big part of the growth mindset that we should hasten to mention is this whole thing around praise and the disservice we do to children when we praise them just for being a certain way like you're so beautiful or you're so cute or you're so smart or you're so athletic yeah. We make those kinds of statements. The subtle message underneath is these are innate abilities that you were just gift lucky enough to be born with. Rather than praising the effort, yeah. praising the work that they've done. You know, I, you, I, I was so impressed by how much time you put into that or how focused you were on your work or how much research you did. Then you're, and so we're subtly underscoring the very skills we want them to do more of. When you tell me I'm attractive, that doesn't give me any information to like, how do I get better at this? Yeah. I don't know. But when you point out the things that I'm doing well that you noticed and admired, guess what? I'm going to do more of those things. And it'll make me want, it's like, ooh, you noticed that I put a lot of effort into that? Well, it makes, it makes putting effort in more appealing. Yeah. Yeah, and it has everything to do with the process, and nothing to do with the results. That's right. That's the other thing that that light bulb that went off in my head when you said that is, it, okay. is you're not saying you did a great. Like I love, I love the finished product. I love the right. the art project you did. No, what you're saying is, no, I love the effort you put into that. I love the energy you put into that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then I I always love going back to, especially when kids present me with something. If I was around while they were creating it, I always like to be able to say, you know, I saw what attention to detail and how much time you spent on this, you know, but then to tell me, you tell me what this is about. 
rather than me rushing in to go great sailboat and then to always be met with it. It's not a sailboat response kind of thing. It's like, tell me all about this. And but here's the other thing. We have to be really genuine when we ask kids these questions. You know, you cannot say, tell me about your drawing and then go off to do the laundry. You know, and, and you have to really want to like listen for maybe what could be like three minutes of, you know, for some kids who are super verbal, it may be three minutes of, and then I did this, and then I decided that this tree needed to be, and then I thought, well, that wasn't really right, so I did this. You know, they'll go on and on with any encouragement. But how, how great for that child to also find their own voice about their work. And the relationship that you're building with them doing that. Actually, he, relationship is at the center of everything. None of us. I, I am pretty darn convinced. Human beings almost do nothing except in relationship to others. You know, there are people who live entirely onto themselves, um, but that's a very hard way to be. And even those folks are, yeah. you know, studying the works of others, you know, reading other people's thinking. You know, we we are it's a serve and return kind of world. And but we don't want to be in relationship with people who cannot hold any kind of positive regard for us. So if all we hear are the things we're doing wrong and we don't see that positive regard reflected back. Yeah, it's hard to maintain our relationship. It's really yeah. hard. Yeah, and as a as, from a child's perspective, like how unfair if that's the environment you're right. in. As, a, as an adult or someone who's who's lived longer, you, we may have more ability to move out of toxic relationships right. or environments. Right. Uh, but I guess that's the message to to all of us who interact with other people and parents that we don't we want to engender a, a a different kind of environment. Well, and part of that, I think for me, and maybe that brings us full circle, David, is I truly do believe as, again, this has been an overwrought sentiment, but it's overwrought and it's trite because it's so God awful true. I mean, it really is the truth and yet we don't live it. And that is, it takes a village to raise children. And yet we are narrowing and narrowing down the only, you know, it's the nuclear family and nuclear families, not even extended families any longer. The pressure is all on them for this little person. And I think, you know, that's the other value of ensuring that our children have other adults in their lives besides us as their parents, because they can see how other adults are in the world. And other adults will answer their questions differently than we do. And I don't think we should be afraid of that. Um, even if they are, you know, if, if a child ta is talking to a teacher who may give them a different lens about a topic, yeah. that be our family's lens on that topic, if we've developed a good enough relationship in our family to be open to talk about that, then hopefully your child's going to come back and talk to you about it and say, well, you know, Suzanne said, yeah. it's like, well, you know, that's how Suzanne sees it. Yeah. But here's the great thing about in the world. We all eventually choose how we're going to see the world. Yeah. So that's that's one perspective you can think about. And this is my perspective as your dad. This is how I think about that. And here's your mom's perspective. And, you know, 
it it's we open the universe and we open our children's minds to the universe rather than there's only one way to think about the world and it's my way it's like and and not to be afraid of allowing our children to think differently i think that for me personally that's really powerful to hear you remind that Mm -hmm. because and then at the end of that when you're hearing all these different things Eventually, what, what they're building, too, is that ability to, to be discerning, to be That's critical. Right. And, and, right. and you said then, they, then they, they're going to make their own choices, but it's not going to come without talking about it, seeing all these different perspectives, being around different environments. And Well, and what a good point. And how to evaluate those different perspectives. Because if you haven't done that early in life with your kids and talk to them about what they talk about with other people, then yes, you can have an adolescent who can fall under the spell of a very charismatic adult who all of a sudden has a tremendous amount of sway and influence on their thinking. Because this is the first other adult who they've, you know, who has yeah. held positive regard for them, who's really been taken an interest in them, and who they've listened to and they've had that relationship with. Where if you started back when they were three, four, five, six, eight, and it's like, yeah, they've been, you've been around lots of adults. And yeah, some of our friends have some pretty crazy ideas. Yeah. And we've talked about our friends and their crazy ideas, you know. Well, it's or, funny. It's it's funny because paper, you know whatever. We we do seem to live in a world where a lot of people come under the spell of very charismatic people, and and maybe maybe they they you know they were, they were building this uh, I don't want to say gullibility or whatever, but from a very young age, and and it it makes it um, so that it's easier to have a world where people just kind of go with the go with the common notion or you know whatever the trend is yeah unfortunately I, I really I think we have given up on teaching critical thinking um, and I also do think we are desperate for positive regard you know the amount of time that adolescents are spending on social media and how crushed they are with you know when they don't have enough likes that enough not enough people are following them I mean to me that's just it's heartbreaking that one's self-esteem would be reflected by people you don't even know. Yeah, yeah, right. You have no real relationship with, and yet their assessment of you in a very superficial way is what is determining your own behavior. It's heartbreaking. Well, it, it is the Dunbar effect or the Dunbar bar number. Have you ever heard of that? Like we have these, we have these social media accounts with thousands of followers or thousands. Those aren't our friends, right? Like that's like, right. I think the Dunbar effect is something that like you only can really have a meaningful relationship with like, like, like 50 people. And then it, it, it dwindles right. down. The more meaning is only like six or 60. It's that that's village right. That's that right. you're talking about. And yet we, we uh, live in a culture where, you know, we think we have 10,000 friends and that's right. just frankly not. And part of why it's impossible is because real relationships take time. So when we give up time with our children or with other people and settle for, you know, one second, whatever's likings and hearts on a social media platform. Yeah. We actually aren't establishing a relationship because relationships happen over time and with time and with presence. So because they take time, we're lucky if we're going to have 
10 really close people in our lives. And then, yeah, we may know and be, and be fairly well acquainted with, as you say, 50, yeah. but really the people we're really close with, yeah. I think you're super lucky if you've got 10. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my thoughts, David. It, I have to say, I, it's a it's a real joy talking to you. It's fun to riff off of each other and... Likewise, likewise, I've, I've felt like I've, I mean, I, I'm going to probably listen back to this and, and um, five, 10, 100 times and just try to try to jot down things that I heard you say. So I, I think it's been a real treat yeah. and, uh, and uh, just super positive. I think a lot of people may really enjoy this. Well, I what, hope so. I, I think I think I think that will be the case. Um, if someone does want to contact you directly, if they have a question, or if sure. they want to read more about your work, is, is that possible? Is, Ab yeah. Absolutely. And as I say, this is only one sort of sliver of stuff that I'm interested in. So there's anything that has to do with kids. I, I may not be an expert on it, but I'm certainly interested in the topic. So people can certainly reach me via email if they want to reach out to me directly. And that's just Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E dot Flint at Comcast.net. And then, unfor well, fortunately or unfortunately, um, because my latest job was working for the California State Library, probably the best place to find the most content that I produced on the topic of childhood was what it's called the Early Learning with Families at Your Library website. But it's very public facing. And so anybody can go and there are, you know, topic areas that you can read. There are other webinars that we filmed with all kinds of experts like T. Barry Brazelton and um, other Allison Gopnik and other folks that we did webinars with. They're there and archived on this website. And um, so should I just spell it out in terms of the easiest way to do it? Sure. And, and what I'll do, you can spell it out. And also I'll, I'll, underneath the uh, YouTube link or you know, uh, this, this, this will be on Spotify as a, as a okay. podcast also. Okay. Um, but I'll just put a little link there. Whatever okay. you say, I'll link it so people can just hit the link. So it's the secured network. So it's HTTPS, okay. um, you know, colon, forward slash, forward slash. And then it's ELF for Early Learning Families 2, the number 2, dot library, dot CA, dot GOV. Wonderful. So there's tons there people can find. And then truly anybody can email me. I'm always happy to entertain the possibility of more conversations on this really important topic. Awesome. Well, I think we have a, a good reason to be hopeful uh, in, in, in light of the fact that there's also a lot of things that we could look at in, in a less than hopeful way. I think there's also a lot of reasons we can be pretty hopeful about what's happening and where we're going. I, I, I think so too. And I think in large part, David, it's because your generation is really questioning some of the things my generation has been doing um, and I more power to you and you know pushing against the predominant we've always done it this way kind of thinking it's really important so thank you for being out there and both personally and professionally and working with children and families and trying to change the conversation oh well it's it's, it's a pleasure to be able to speak with you and those two you mentioned them earlier critical thinking and and positive regard. I mean, those those just sound like core values of of whatever whatever it is we're doing, wherever we're going. But those those two things together might be, you know, kind of at the at the base of it. Yeah. So this has been a lot of fun. It's been fantastic, David. I hope we stay in touch one way or the other. No pressure. I don't want you to feel like you have to do anything. But it, I will. I'll be fascinated in in cheering on your own trajectory as you whatever wherever you go, whatever you do next. 
I, I that means a lot to me, and I think that's amazing, and I I think that's a very distinct possibility that we will stay in touch. Okay, sounds good. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye.